May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'm telling, you've heard the kids say this, right? I'm telling mom is going to kill you. You've heard a, a, a sibling say that, um, a loving sibling, to their sister or brother, right? I'm telling you're in so much trouble. Mom told us we're not allowed to play ball in the house. And look, you've gone and broken that vase. That vase, she's, she loves that vase so much, she doesn't even call it a vase. She calls it a vase. You know, it's, and she loves that vase probably more than she loves you. You are in, you are in so much trouble, and I'm telling. Well, that's what happened around my house. Maybe that happened around yours. But when I was growing up, this is, this is what we did, you know, like, oh, this opportunity just to rat your sister or brother out, in my case, all brothers. Just one good shot at it. Um, I was thinking about this time when I was a kid. And uh, I lived in these uh, apartment complex, you know, like kind of long strand of one after another kind of townhouse-like apartments. And it was a summer day. It must have been about eight or nine. I was bored, and so I was going looking for things to do. And I was kind of going through the drawers in the kitchen. I don't know why. This, I must have been really bored. And I discovered a pack of matches. And I thought, well, this looks like a, a good amount of entertainment, you know. So I stuck them in my pocket, and I, I slip out the door and go down to the end of the building and and it was a hot summer day, and I thought I'd practice my match-striking skills. I don't know why, you know. And so uh, I struck a match, and, you know, I couldn't get it going at first, and, th- and then I did. It wasn't as easy as all the adults made it look, you know. And, and I struck it, and it burnt my finger. And as soon as I did, I, I let go of it. And I don't know, just one of those freaks of nature that it didn't go out on its descent to the ground. But I was so busy, interesting, look at, you know, the tip of my finger that was burnt, you know, and uh, kind of wetting it and all that sort of stuff. I didn't realize that the brown, crunchy grass under my feet had been dry for a long time, had caught fire, you know. And so I'm looking at my, my finger and, you know, and all of a sudden I realize that this fire is going in four directions very quickly. And so I, I start stomping on it, but I can't get it out. You know, it's going too fast, too quickly. And so I take off and I run back down to the apartment that we lived in. And I, I, I went for the bucket, but I didn't know where we kept the bucket. You know, this is one of those times where I wish I had done some mopping. Um, and so I, I had to ask my mother, you know, where do we keep the bucket? And she tells me, oh, it's in this closet or whatever. And I'm filling up with water. And she says, but why do you need the bucket? You know, at this point, I realized I had to come clean, you know, but I didn't want to be, accept culpability. So um, I had to tell her about the fire, and I did, but I said, you're not going to believe what happened. I was walking around the corner down at the end of the building, and some boy had lit a, uh, matches and took off running. And so I've come to the rescue. I thought it was a stroke of genius, you know. Um, I had gone from being criminal to local hero in like a, an instant, you know, and in my mind I hadn't even anticipated it, and here it was, you know, I couldn't have been looking better if I had saved a cat out of a tree. But anyway, I get it right back around to the corner with a bucket of water, and my mother's flying behind me, and by now, this fire is just going. Um, I understood the phrase spreading like wildfire at that very moment, you know, and, and so I, I, my mother's helping me douse it, and she's stomping and sends me back for more, and while I'm gone, she's, you know, alerting neighbors, and when I got back with my second bucket, there's a bucket brigade, okay, there are people everywhere putting out this fire. And I'm thinking, oh no, you know, this is really, this is really spreading not just the fire, but the whole problem. And as I'm dousing it with my second bucket, the whole score of people out there stomping and, and, and pouring buckets of water, I hear the sirens from the fire truck. 
it's a federal case now, you know. I mean, I'm eight years old. What do they do with eight-year-olds? You know, I don't know. There's probably some penitentiary for eight-year-olds, you know, that I'm going to go to. And um, and so we finally get the fire put out. And uh, my mother, um, she uh, takes me to the fireman in charge and says, you know, tell him your story. And I decided to double down, you know. I've already gone this far. I'm going to tell him the same story as I can remember it that I told my mother. At the end of it, I think I might have said something in, like, you can just send the reward to apartment C or something like that, you know. Um, I know I don't like to use the word hero, but, uh, you know, it, th- that sort of thing. I, I got the sense that people didn't believe me, you know, that they were looking at me with, with you know, quite a bit of suspicion. Um, I tried to describe the real culprit as I made up an identity for him. Um, but, uh, you know, it had enough ring of truth that, that they somehow weren't willing to punish me for it but not right, quite, quite ready to believe me either. I thought about George Washington and how he chopped down the cherry tree. Um, and he tells the truth, right? But I decided I was going to risk my future presidency on this thing and, um, and just kind of go with my story. Um, breaking a vase is one thing. Starting a fire, you know, that kind of spreads all over the place, probably not going to get off as easily. You know, this is going to be serious punishment. And I know what you're thinking right now. Uh, I know you're thinking, Joe, that was not your finest moment. You're right. It wasn't my worst either. We'll save that for another day, okay? <laughs> but, you know, we all have these moments. We know what the rule is. We, we know what the rule is. Don't play with matches. That was a hard and fast rule with the boys of the household, you know? When I discovered that book of matches in the kitchen junk drawer, I knew that I was not supposed to pick those things up and take them. That's what made me want to do it, right? And so, you know, I, I, I knew what the rule was. I was ready to break it. I wasn't ready to deal with the consequences. Although I thought I had escaped them, you never really escape the consequences of breaking the rule. The Apostle Peter knows something about breaking rules. He, um, he wasn't a kid. He, he, he didn't lie about what he did. He, he, he came clean with it, told the truth. But he still got into a bit of trouble. If you read the story, the backstory before, he, he kind of syno- gives a bit of a synopsis of it here in chapter 11. In chapter 10, we get a full story. And, and it goes like this, that, that he's hanging out in this city called Joppa. And he's staying with this fellow called Simon, who's a, a tanner. And he goes up to pray one day up on a rooftop terrace. And while he's up there, he gets really hungry. I like that part of the story because oftentimes when I'm praying, I get kind of hungry. You ever, has that ever happened to you? I mean, I get kind of hungry. I also think about other things I shouldn't be thinking of. My mind wanders. The Apostle Peter, St. Peter, he does the same thing. So I felt like I was in good company when I read that story again this week. He goes up to pray. He gets really hungry. But then he falls into this trance. And in his trance, in his, in his vision, he sees this big sheet, like a giant tablecloth, coming down out of heaven with all these animals on it. And a voice from heaven, presumably the voice of God, that says, you know, basically, get up and choose your meal. Um, kill and eat. And Peter's, no, all of the foods on this are non-kosher foods. I don't eat these things. These have never, I know the rule. These are not on our diet. My mother would never approve. And then the sheet comes down and, and he comes out of his trance and he's trying to think, what in the world does this mean? And about the same time, he hears a knock at the door. He's upstairs, he listens down, he hears these fellows saying, is there a guy named Peter here? He's kind of shocked, goes down, hears the story. This fellow named Cornelius, who lives in another city, Caesarea, had a vision 
And, and an angel said to go to Joppa to Simon the Tanner's house and get Peter. Peter's kind of struck by this. It has the ring of truth. And so he, he runs with him and goes back to, to Cornelius' house. He arrives at Cornelius' house perhaps just about dinner time. And I bet in your mind, maybe you're thinking this. That's nice. God has helped Peter to make new friends. And he's even provided a meal for him at a time when he's hungry. I mean, isn't that quite providential? But not so fast. Peter is a Jew, like all first century Christians at this time. Every Christian at this point was Jewish by ethnicity. Peter is this Jewish Christian who's invited to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's a Roman. And he's a Roman soldier. He is the worst kind of Gentile. He's the worst kind of pagan. Peter knows that he should turn around and leave. He should not stay. I mean, this is tantamount to, you know, uh, really bad behavior. This is, this is seeing something, you know, like, this is not just cringeworthy. It's scandalous. What is he doing? He's going into this house. But Cornelius tells Peter the story. I, I, know, I'm a, I know I'm a Gentile. I know I'm a Roman. But I've been praying to your God, the God of the Jews, for some time. And just a few days ago, as I'm praying, I have this vision, and an angel comes right into my house. And he tells me to send for you, and that you will give me a message that will give me life. What is that message? And so Peter does what he does. He preaches about Jesus. And Cornelius and all of his friends all buy into this. They're, this is fantastic. And they say, we believe in Jesus. We believe in the resurrection. And suddenly the Holy Spirit comes. So powerful, so sudden, so, uh, you know, uncontroverted. The people begin speaking in tongues. They're doing all sorts of, of ecstatic moments. It, Peter is certain that this is a real baptism of the Spirit. He takes them out and baptizes them. He then heads home. But Peter had gone with some friends, and they don't go back to Joppa. You know where they go? They go to Jerusalem. This is where the mother church is. <laughs> this is this is the story. You're not going to believe what Peter did. He's hanging out at Cornelius' house, preaching the gospel to Gentiles. He even baptized them. The scandal is broken out. The news story is out. A leading clergyman in the church, the leading clergyman in the church, has been out in doing inappropriate things. There might be charges. We we might need to pull his credentials. He could be in serious trouble for this. Peter goes up to Jerusalem to tell them the story. And he tells them just like you heard it this morning. And then Peter says this. If God gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? That's a little blame shifting, but it's a pretty good one. You put the, you put the onus on God. It's not my doing. I didn't start this thing. I'm only following through on what the Lord is doing in our midst. The real scandal here is the scandal of God's mercy. That God in his mercy would welcome in pagans. The nerve. And that he was at work in the life of a pagan Roman centurion before he had ever heard of the church. That he didn't even know about the church. He, 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 God was at work in this man's life without anyone 
having any uh, permission given to it. You know, and the real issue is that God is opening the kingdom to all people. This isn't sloppy universalism, though. It's not, uh, you know, uh, we're all good. You know, not, uh, it's not that. Because notice what happens at the end. Even the, the interrogators say, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles, God has also granted, listen to this, the repentance that leads to life. The repentance. All people are welcome. But all people come through the same door. By faith, repenting, turning from sin, turning toward God. This is how everybody comes in. Okay, so what do we make of this? What, what is this to us? A, a few things I have. I think first, descriptively, and in always, these, it describes some things. It describes people who were filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter and all the other apostles, the brothers, they say. All these holy people. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. They all have good intentions. They're all, they all have pure hearts. And yet, even then, they still are ignorant of the work of God in the world. They have no idea. No idea at all what God is up to. They think they know. But God is breaking rules that they think God shouldn't be breaking. I think this says to us that sometimes we need to open our eyes. That God sometimes breaks rules that we didn't think that he should break. That he's, um, he's at work in the world in places we didn't expect him to be at work in the world. And that sometimes this breaks stride with convention. Second, I think it says that these men who were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were apostles. I mean, they were, they, they were people we call saints, right? Saint Peter, Saint James, Saint Thomas. These people who were filled with the Holy Spirit, who were committed to the work of God in the world, were still blind to their own prejudices. They were blind to their own prejudices. They, they, they couldn't see that they were prejudiced, that they were prejudiced against Gentiles, against pagans. They, um, they, they thought that they were actually better, qualitatively better ethnicity, you know, of, of a qualitatively better ethnicity than the other people. I know in our world, our news media loves to exacerbate racial tensions. It loves to, to create a fire and then, and then put a spotlight on that and say, wow, isn't everybody just like this? Um, this is what happens, right? Because then you can sensationalize a story and make it a bigger story than what it is. I've been all over the world, and many of you have as well. Let me tell you what I've seen. I think nobody does multiculturalism like the United States of America. Nobody does. I mean, other countries are ethnically, um, you know, monolithic. They're countries that are are almost all of a single um, ethnicity. So if somebody comes in as a guest, yeah, you're welcome, whatever. But nobody lives in a multicultural world like we do. Okay, and yet we still kind of have to struggle against these prejudices, don't we? We still have a world in which these prejudices exist because people are by nature tribal. And so we we find ways to be tribal and uh, and to be us against thems. Luke is stressing throughout the gospel and throughout the book of Acts that there is one race, the human race. There's that we are one people in this world. And if you go all through it, you can find this as a constant theme throughout Luke's writing. Third, I think um it reminds us about our own individual spiritual lives. That if this morning 
you know a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is because of this, that Christ found you, not the other way around. I I mean, I know how we use that language, you know, I I came to Christ, I found Christ, whatever, whatever. Well, that's, I mean, that's great. Nomenclature aside, let me just say this. If you know Jesus, it's because Jesus found you. That God comes to us just like he came to Cornelius, just like he came to Peter. God is at work. He's the initiator of action in the world. He's the initiator of salvation. And this ought to inspire gratitude in all of us. We ought to be like, wow, that's amazing that God should love me. He should pursue me, that he should find me. Uh, there's a story of this fellow, John Bradford. Perhaps you've heard of him. He's a uh, 16th century English clergyman. Um, he lived in a time in England where, um, where the world was really cruel and tough. People could be imprisoned for being in debt. There were debtors' prisons. People were actually, men and women, placed in jail because they couldn't pay their, their bills. Um, you could also uh, imprison children. And, and children could be even executed. Men, women, and children were executed for what we would consider misdemeanor offenses. Uh, children could be executed for theft, for instance. And often these executions were made a public spectacle so that they were, they were t- handed out in, in a public event and, and people would gather around them and they would, you know, jeer at the convicts and, and yell obscenities towards them and, and all that sort of uh, carnival-like atmosphere. And one day, the story is told that John Bradford and his friend were walking down the street and they happened to come upon one of these, you know, public execution events. And his friend made some sort of passing comment, you know, sort of a, a sneer about the, the convicts, like many people would do. And Bradford is said to have stopped in the street and looked at his friend. And he says to him, but for the grace of God, there goes John Bradford. But for the grace of God, there goes I. Right? There go I. That, but for the grace of God, that's me. It is the grace of God at work in our lives. Not because we've earned it or deserved it or done anything to merit it. That's what grace is. That God is at work saving the world. And none of us has a claim on that. It ought to inspire an awful lot of gratitude. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.